theyeshiva.net. Okay. Hello and welcome everyone to another Fresh Start alumni webinar. I know it feels like yesterday that we had one, but that's kind of because we did. Um, with us today, besides having again the amazing Rabbi YY to help bring clarity and the Torah Hashkafa to some very sensitive and complex topics, we're also honored to be joined by Dr. Stephen Porges, um, known as a, uh, a father figure in the world of trauma healing with his uh, work on the polyvagal theory, which we'll get into uh, shortly. Um, these sessions are always amazing. Dr. Forges, we're not always sure where they're going to end up. We know where they start, but really it's somewhat of an open-ended discussion. I think today the goal is to get a, a layman's explanation, if you will, from the man who spent his last X number of 30, 40, 50 years on you know, the autonomic nervous system, polyvagal theory, much of what we talk about here at Fresh Start, um, to get a better understanding of it. And then, of course, some questions will come up. Um, but it's an honor to be here. It's an honor to be with all of our alumni. And with that being said, Rabbi YY, perhaps uh, step in and start out this, what will certainly be an interesting discussion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just tell me you could see me and hear me clearly, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're good to go. Perfect. So first of all, it's my honor and privilege to be able to uh, sit face-to-face, at least on Zoom, with the world-renowned Dr. Porges. It's really an incredible honor and privilege. And the reason I say it's an honor and privilege is because uh, Dr. Stephen Porges has really dedicated his life to try to ease the suffering of humanity. Is that a uh, accurate definition? Well, if I can respond, uh, it's kind of like uh, understanding who we are as a species is really the journey so that we can optimize our presence in the world. And part of that presence we learn is to be helpful to others. So it, it's not, I mean, our, we use terms like uh, generous, but we don't realize that benevolence and generosity are nourishing to us. And of course, in you know, in, in your studies, I'm sure that's part of the studying that you learn. But I'm here to tell you that there's a neurobiological substrate to that. Wow, that's beautiful. In fact, in the Torah, in the book of Genesis, the first mm. meal that's served by mm. a host to strangers, Abraham serving his guests, he gives them milk. So the Hasidic masters say, why milk? Because it's, it's the one physical substance that the more you give... Yeah, the more you receive. Everything else yeah. is a zero-sum game. If I the, give you a check. The important, it's another point you brought up. Uh, if you read, in a sense, in the Bible, in all these, uh, in a sense, what we learn when we're young, it's all, eating is part of a social event. Right. But in modern society, we have stripped the food right. from, we think in terms of nutrients. Right. But we forget about the social nutrient. And this is what polyvagal theory is about. Wow. It's about the fact that the social nutrient enables us to regenerate mentally and physically. Wow. So the, 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 what, you're, what you really taught, I think what you taught so many of us is the deep kinship between the pure physical and the emotional yeah. attachment. Yeah. Yeah. In other words, attachment is, is inherent to the fabric of, of biology. 
Yeah, what I would really say is it's not just attachment. It's really accessibility, being safe with another or being safe in this presence of another is really where our bodies, where they change. And we have our models. We have the baby who is comforted in the arms of the mother. And when you brought up the issue of giving milk, it becomes part of that same metaphor. The nutrient of the mother is milk, but it's actually almost a misdirection. Because what does a baby do when given milk? The baby suckles. What is the neurophysiology of suckling? It's a neural exercise of all the structures that later become our social engagement system. So if we're not nursed, if we're not suckling, if we're not safe as infants, our ability to socially engage, meaning to have this bidirectional calming and reciprocity, co-regulation with another is going to be compromised. Wow. So I want to I want to begin this journey with this incredible journey with you and very meaningful and thank you and thank you for everybody who's joining us with 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 something you have spoken about and you have written about and I think it's a, it's a major part of the Palavegi's theory and that is the element of so many of us and I think so many people who are on this program right now and people who are watching it or will watch it or listen to it later you know they blame themselves for the people that they have become in terms yeah. of I'm detached, I'm, 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 I'm yeah. disassociated, I'm yeah. self-centered, I'm mm. angry, I, I flip mm. out, I lose it, I can't be there for my spouse, for my kids, for myself. Mm. Could you talk about the yeah. fact how there comes a point where you actually have to give yourself credit Well, it, thank it, here. yourself for what you did to survive? Yes. So when the the starting, let's say, the traction of polyvagal theory within the world of trauma was for people to understand that their bodily reactions to traumatic events like shutting down or dissociating or becoming uh, numb in their body, these were adaptive. Their body was doing the best it could do for them under those contexts. And what we learned actually through the narratives of these heroic survivors, and they are heroic, is really what their body did. And the body, in a sense, was the vehicle of the heroism. And rather than blaming it, it's a moment of honoring. The issue is the body saved you, and it went into certain states that optimize your survival. But those states are not the core of who you are. And what we want to do is invite that core to express itself, to expose itself. But that core is always, if you carry with that you that trauma history, that core is always cautious, hypervigilant, and doesn't want to show its face because it will get injured again. So the secret of that transformation of becoming that engaged, co-regulatory, benevolent, generous uh, person is that your nervous system has to get the cues and signals of safety and literally believe it. So the metaphor I've been using now is that we need to feel safe enough so that we can be who we are. And we don't know who many people will be if they're safe enough. We don't know how brilliant, how loving, how creative. We don't know what the world will be like when people feel safe enough to be who they are. Wow. So I want to speak to the adults who are here now. When I'm 30 or 40 or 50, and I'm finding myself disassociating from my children or from my spouse or from somebody else, or I'm finding myself respond in another way which I find dysfunctional and destructive. We often 
are very hard on ourselves and we try to to destroy that response. Yeah. And what you're suggesting is it's a moment to reflect with gratitude. It's, it's even more it's even more than that. Let's go one step further because we are in a world that demands of us and it demands of us not about our feelings but about our productivity. And through our lives our bodies are screaming at us to say pay attention to me. You know, you know, relax, calm down, have an embrace, have some loving moments, have some spiritual moments. Get rid of that hypervigilance that person over the back the idea that someone is always, always evaluating you. So if you're not working hard enough, you're not a good person. And that's been our culture. It's a very product-oriented culture. And it's been a great violation of our body because underneath uh, what we call feelings, you know, we feel ashamed, we feel angry, we feel safe. What is a feeling of being safe? What is it from a physiological level? It's saying that our autonomic nervous system is doing its job. It's supporting the management of our organs. It's supporting what's called homeostasis, the homeostatic functions of health, growth, and restoration. Our body can heal, but our mental health sits on top of that physical health. When our body isn't healthy, our mind is also in a state of defense, and that's the world most of us are living in. And it's very hard to be immune of that. The cues are overwhelming. I, we, some of you have seen, I'm sure, the movie The Matrix. And in the movie, they talk about literally it's a digital world. We're not really uh, experiencing it, but we live in a matrix. And that matrix is really cues of threat. Turn on the TV, uh, walk into a classroom. You know, even look, in my discussion with uh, Rabbi Russell was what about the environments of the yeshivas? Are they safe environments that allow people to be safe enough to be brilliant? Or are they demanding and self, uh, basically self-punishing? So if you want people to be internalized enough so you don't have to, in a sense, criticize them, they'll criticize themselves. So in many ways, we've done things in a very successful way if that is the product that we want in society. But if we step back and say, what is the true product of being a human being? It's this benevolent uh, species that is helpful to others, that loves to help others and gets, as I said, nourishment by being helpful. And we miss that, even though we know it, we have the archetype of the mother and the infant. But very quickly, we start, in a sense, child rearing of taking the child away and demanding a capacity to self-regulate when the nervous system says, I'm not finished co-regulating, my body needs the co-regulation to get those cues of safety so that I can self-regulate at a later point in life. Let's be patient. Let's allow individuals to develop that capacity. And I use the term neural exercises because even the baby nursing is a neural exercise of these feedback loops that enable self-regulation later. Right. So if you could talk to us on a very practical level, those of us, forgive me, who were raped or molested as children, yeah. beaten, emotionally mm. neglected, traumatized in one way or another, maybe over yeah. years. Yeah. As we grow up, we may not even be aware of yeah. how uptight and afraid yeah. our nervous system is. Number one, how do I even identify? How do I learn to hear what my body is saying, number one. And number yeah. two, 
how do I begin to feel safe in a world that has been okay. so cruel to me when I was two years old, four years old, six years old? Okay, let's start off with one basic rule. It's, it's kind of like the instructions, don't try this at home by yourself, okay? So in a sense, the self, that healing journey is not a self-healing journey, or let's put it this way, it's very difficult for an individual to heal on themselves because they need a context to feel safe enough to give up their vigilance. And that means they need cues of safety coming from a trusted individual. The underlying theme, and I'm sure this is part of Fresh Start, is that there's a trusting environment. And once that trusting environment is physically, let's say, internalized into the nervous system, then things open up and experiences occur. The the journey, and this is what you're asking me, what is the journey? First, I'm going to tell you that staying out of that journey has its own adaptive uh, features, being numb, not remembering, being highly mobilized, being anxious, being productive, being a workaholic. You know, all these features result in rewards within the culture we're in. It says I can I can generate more resources, more stuff. And therefore, if I have a bigger house, a nicer car, my kids go to private schools where they'll be abused as the tradition of the schools, uh, I'm a success. I mean, because we really misunderstand what it is to be a successful human being. And I think in terms of rabbinical studies, you that's part of the quest. What is it? to be a successful human Could being. You give us Dr. Porger's and, definition of being a successful human being? <laughs> well, I'm on my journey of what it is. And I also, my, uh, and I'm, I'm going to be very upfront. You know, I've been, a, you know, I, I've been an academic for uh, over 50 years. And, you know, within university settings, and they are far from welcoming and warm, fuzzy, supportive environments. Now, I'm a survivor, and I'm also a thriver from that those bit, but I'm also secure enough to realize it's a stupid way of managing a resource, okay? But I went through it for many reasons. I felt if I had interesting ideas that I wanted to present, I needed the credibility of that other world. I need to leverage my successes so that I can go on a podcast and talk to you, you know, without worrying about uh, someone else saying, what's poor just doing now? You know, he's not in the laboratory. You know, the world is that we need to feel safe enough to be who we are. So the journey is uh, we may be in phases of our life. We may need to be hypervigilant and defensive and mobilized. But we need to become transformative. And what that means to me is a reflection on our successes, the narrative of success. And that's where you start this discussion with me. The narrative of success, even though the features may appear to be disastrous, you survived. And this is a remarkable issue. And once you survive these these uh, events or these experiences, they're literally doubt is a roadmap of how to get out of it. I mean, this is, I would say, use the term beauty, but we don't really mean that. We mean that this is the optimism of a period of time that my friends like Bessel, who was on talking to you last week, I believe you said. Yes. Uh, Bessel, I mean, talking about heroic people, Bessel was so passionate about this whole area of trauma that he compromised his own professional life in working in it. 
Now, I always, so Bessel and I are very good friends, and I always will say to him, I will say to him, I couldn't do what you did. And he'll look at me and says, sure, Steve, you would, certainly. I said, no. I said, I'm very pragmatic. Uh, I Because I saw a vision of what I wanted to do and needed the, in a sense, the resources, the credibility to do that. So I had to live within, let's say, the belly of the enemy, if we want to call it that. I had to live, I'm a Trojan horse person. So I, I had to be within a university structure to understand that world so that I could navigate and I could succeed and flourish within that to do what I thought was transformative work. Bessel, you know, what I basically, you know, and this is not meant in any negative way. I said, Bessel's like a Don Quixote. He has a mission and that mission is what he does. And he has successfully brought uh, trauma and especially sexual abuse in young women to the forefront. He's not the only one. Another friend of mine, uh, Frank Putnam, was a clinical psycho, uh, excuse me, a, a child psychiatrist at the NIH. And I had known him for, actually I've known him for over 40 years. And he got pushed out because he said, this is not a validator to study. This is kind of like what happened to Bessel in his own work. He was, they pushed him out of the academic world because the question was a taboo question. And for both those people, they put their lives, their professions, their careers, their families, everything in great jeopardy. And I basically was in great honoring of what they've done. So that that's not my journey. I, you know, I couldn't do that. That's what you have done. What I do is something different. And I am able to straddle the domains and provide a, let's use this term, a neuroscientific explanation to take the experience of trauma out of there's nothing wrong with you. I took all the tests. You're fine. Why aren't you back at work mm. to understand that the nervous system affects how we think, how we perceive, how we react to the world. And over time, the nervous system either supports our organs or promotes illness in them. Wow. And in psychiatry, they talk about that in psychology, comorbidities. Polyvagal theory says, throw that out. They're not comorbidities. They're part of the same threat reaction. And they're telling you things. So when you talk you about people... you feel that mental illness is included in this? Mental oh, illness? yeah. Oh, I mean, wow. it, it, mental... It, okay, so to give you Bipolar, borderline oh, personality, it, schizophrenia. Yeah, visualize an inverted triangle. At the base is the brainstem. It's the brain, okay? Up top is the cortex with all its manifestations, its creativity, its narratives, its self-organizing principles. The brainstem is quite small, very primitive. We share it, yeah, we share it with many, many other vertebrates. Slight modifications, we adapted uh, basically from reptiles, we made some changes, but basically we carry some very primitive structures with us. The brainstem does two things really well. Or one thing, it, it determines whether we're safe or we're under threat. And when our body goes into states of threat, the everything above it in the brain gets compromised. Everything. And it's as simple as that. We have to understand that we can only be who we really are if we're safe. The interesting thing that occurred during this very interesting evolutionary journey is that the nerve the vagus, and this is how we get to polyvagal. The nerve that calms us down 
in reptiles is basically a nerve that shuts them down, but they don't need much oxygen because their brains are small. But in the brainstem, the nerves that control that slowing of the heart rate through the vagus, the cells that start those nerves went for a journey. They started to move ventrally toward the front of the body and became intertwangled, intertangled with the nerves that control the muscles of the face and head. So that when you suck, when you vocalize, when you smile, it's playing a game with your vagus. So we now have uh, basically externalized the ability to calm our body through voice, through ingestion, through listening, through singing, through smiling, through proximity. Think about your day, you know, morning prayer. Think about uh, interactions, even the rituals of eating, breaking bread. Uh, even think about the movements in prayer, which are also neural exercises of stimulating that same circuit. And also remember that in in all religious or cultural events, we're not isolated. It's not about a relationship between a single individual and a deity or God. It's a community and God. So you were saying about mental illness, how it affects yeah. How you see the connection. Yeah, yeah. Mental illness is not independent of our physiology. And I think, you know, the fact that you grab onto that is that that view is still permeating the world you're in. And the answer is, and that mental illness is something that we should, ah, it's in your head, leave me alone. But mental illness is in general, you see these comorbidities and in my world, it's autonomic regulation, but it becomes even more than that. Through that evolutionary journey, our voices are really broadcasting our autonomic state. I don't need electrodes. I can listen to your voice. Yeah. So if your voice has intonation, uh, meaning melodic, then you have a lot of vagal or calmingness to you. So think of the mother calming the hysterical baby. And think of the father screaming or yelling at the crying baby. There are different cues that have different results. And the results are different because our nervous systems have literally uh, a template that if we hear a melodic voice, we become like this. Rabbi Waiwai, the first time we met Dr. Porges a couple of years ago, uh, doctor, not sure if you remember, hopefully you still agree with it, you actually pointed out that the concept of minion. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe just dive into that. That was a, a fascinating insight from you about how what minion actually accomplishes within our bodies, literally. Go ahead. The co-regulation, you mean? Yeah. Right. The community was, connection. Yeah. It's amazing what you're saying because one of the great Hasidic masters in the in the 19th century, early 90s, his name was the Mittler Rebbe, he once said that when people come for advice, mm -hmm. he cannot give advice. People talk about their mistakes or their transgressions yeah. or failures. He says, I cannot give advice before I can find what they have done within my own life. Yeah. In other words, I have to find something inside of me. And yeah. I'm understanding what you're saying now because it's all about the safety that comes from true empathetic Connection. It's trust. It's a trust that comes. It's a shared. It's there are a lot of words people use, like in the uh, uh, therapy world, they talk about therapeutic presence. But so I'm not, we, I'm not preaching, but you yeah. can feel safe in my presence because yeah, I'm not yeah. judging you. Right. Because if you're preaching, you're judging. 
But so, if you're so, wow, in so a that's dialogue, essential to healing. It's yeah. amazing. I told Dr. Bessel yesterday. The first thing the Bible says is not good in, in the beginning of Genesis. Before yeah. anything else, it's not good for a human being to be alone. Yeah, it wow. seems like that. That's at the core of of yeah. of, of yeah. our destruction. Absolutely, and uh, and in, including the fact that we're on two dimensional screens and not in in the presence of each other. <laughs> you know, it, it, you know, it's not bad. Listen, it's good to see you, but it would be <laughs> just think of the interaction if we were on the same, you know, platform. The energy flow is, is oh, a completely different yeah. energy flow, and the c- connectedness with other people because of our connectedness with each other. You you also oh. brought to the fore the the incredible wisdom of the body that that most yeah. of us are unaware of. I find that incredible because in, in, in Jewish mystical tradition, you know, mm-hmm. usually in religion, the soul is considered superior to the body. Yeah. And the body just has to be controlled. But in the, in the work, in the writings of Kabbalah and Hasidut, yeah. Jewish spirituality, they talk about the fact that the body has a relationship with the source of life that is deeper than the soul, not yeah. through conscious analysis, but through its very being. Yeah, now you're talking my instinctive intu- intuitions of the world. Yes, that I think that when our body feels good and safe, it's only then that we can be spiritual. Mm. So there, there is an order here of the we have to attend to our bodies and attend to enable the body. If we think of the body as a vehicle or whatever else is in us, we have to be so respectful of wow. that body because if it gets destabilized, we can't think right. But so we many of us think. have been taught that if we respect our body, we're becoming self-indulgent and narcissistic and selfish. How do you know the balance between, yeah. you know, I'm tired, I, I can't do that. Like, what's the, yes. is there a balance? Like, oh, Yeah, well, I have one statement I make all the time, and that is, listen to your body. So what does that mean? So I'm taking a priority. I'm basically saying you need to understand the language of your body and you need to listen to it because it's telling you when it can't handle anymore. Now, we all have gone through things like when our body says stuff and I said, well, you know, I have to get that paper done. I have to get that presentation. You have to do that. So I got to go to the wedding. I have to go visit this person. We turn it off. The answer is that's okay for a while. Our body can deal with it. It's not when we're young, especially, but it's not good for all the time. So the issue is it's nothing wrong with disrupting our homeostatic function in a transitory manner, but it's literally lethal if we do that for a prolonged period of time. The price of doing business as usual. Yeah, yeah. And what we were getting into where people who carry trauma histories are they beating up on themselves they're part of that story is we have to, in a sense, let's go 30,000 feet up and look down. And what we really see is that beating up on themselves keeps them in the state where they don't feel that trauma. So it's been very functional for them for a long time. And they have uh We beat ourselves or... up to protect ourselves from feeling our trauma. Yeah. And and we create a narrative and saying we're doing the right thing because we're providing for a family, we're succeeding in our profession, we're generating resources, but we're not really becoming who we really are or should be. You're a Jew. You're part of yes. the Jewish people. 
We've been around yeah. for 4,000 years. 70 years ago, 80 years ago, 6 million yeah. of us were murdered in Auschwitz and in the death camps. My, my family comes from Russia, persecuted horrifically by Stalin who murdered 40 yeah. or 50 million people. Transgenerational yeah. trauma. Could you explain yeah. what this did to our people? Well, Some of our gra- grandfathers were in Auschwitz, in Mauthausen, in Dachau, in Bergen-Belsen, in the Gulags, in Siberia. Some were running, some were starving. Kids didn't have a day of safety. My mother was a refugee at the age of 10, 11. My father yeah. was a refugee. His father was taken away in 1938 when he was four years old. Yeah. What did this do to our nervous system as Jews, individually and collectively? Well, if I go back... so. My fam, my parents were born in this country, but my grandparents weren't. But on my mother's side, it was from basically Belarus, you know, probably closer to where your family was from. Um, basically, they escaped. Doctor Porges, uh, yeah, Doctor Porges. Now is a good time to say your family lineage. You know, this is the <laughs> crowd that appreciates the Chafetz Chaim. Okay, yeah. so my grandmother's uh, relatively close relative was the Chafetz Chaim, because the Chafetz Chaim's son who was a rabbi in New York, used to visit her home in New Jersey. And I remember because she gave me a a letterhead, stationery, and it said, his last name was Kagan, I believe. And underneath it said, son of the Chafetzkaya. Now, when we start talking about uh, respecting our parents, you know, it's kind of a a powerful thing. So, yeah, there's a, uh, a, a religious, mystical thread in my history. That's my grandmother on my mother's side. My grandfather on that side escaped from the Russian army in a coffin. At least that's how the story goes. They both came over in the er, er, turn of the century, early 1900s. And my grandmother pretended to be a daughter of a rabbi that was coming over at 12 and then was on her own when she got to the United States. And my grandfather escaped. He was like 19 or 20 when he came there. And what's interesting is that they created a family without a family. And there's all kinds of, we can get into the trans uh, generational trauma of their experiences, but they really didn't know how to make a family work. So, I mean, they had, they were successful in the, you know, they survived, their kids got educations, did well. Uh, uh, that was that side of the family. But I, I want to do one other bit on that side, because my grandmother, when I was like six years old, and now we're talking about I'll give you the age because I was born in 45. So it would have been the early 1950s. I'm sitting next to my grandmother on the living room couch and she has a coffee table with a glass top. And some of you may have had relatives who have that. And these were pictures of her family in the old country. And she took my hand and says, Hitler got that one. Hitler got that. You know, so I am now experiencing a memory that I have never forgotten. And when she died, I actually have the tabletop wrapped up in the in the garage. I haven't opened it or looked at it, but it was the sharing of that trauma. It was it was unambiguous. And my father's side had a more term simulated. Uh, they were Central European, and the history of Jews in Central Europe was different than that of Eastern Europe. Yeah. And we, I actually learned more and more about that from the traditions of the two families. And basically, they're both Jewish, but culturally, they're very, very different. So my father's family came from out, outside, uh, basically, so they're, they're, they viewed themselves, they're Austro-Hungarian, but they were from uh, uh, outside of Prague. 
In fact, uh, in the Prague temples, there's still plaques for Porges. There are Porges rabbis there. So it's, it's a traditional family there, although I thought the name was extremely rare here. There they, they know of it. So it, it was a different worldview where the Central Europeans were a Jewish people who I wouldn't say always assimilate, but they function within a more, uh, let's say, diverse, it's a Gentile world. They functioned well within those worlds. While Eastern European was isolated, there were pogroms, there were uh, shuttles. Uh, it was very different. So the part is that what is the transgenerational trauma? Is it my grandmother taking my hand and pointing out those things? Or is it something even deeper? I don't know how deep it is, but when I listen to my friend Gabor Mate, who you may know, yes. and he he's Jewish, and he was basically, his mother was pregnant. Uh, he was born in 1944. During the he Holocaust. Was, during the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah. And he... He feels, and he was Gibor was, was, I think, abducted for for five days. He was taken away from his mother's. His mother gave him up to somebody yeah, to, to, save, to him. save him. Yeah, the issue is, it's deep inside of him. He knows it's there, and he has this Hungarian, and we kind of have this brother relationship because there's this this Hungarian part of me too, um, but it's deep there, and so we, we see Bessel who grew up. Uh, basically during, was born during the famine following World War II in the Netherlands, the Boer. And if you have met Peter Levine or not, he has another uh, basic trauma history. Now, here's me, who basically functions through life and doesn't have any identifiable traumas. and But I have this very, I would say, this mind that kind of deconstructs other people's experiences. And I start to see these principles occurring, and I realize that my friends are reacting to the world differently than I am. And that even though I could say I suffer from transgenerational trauma, not to a great degree, my body is always maintained its sense. Basically, I've been, I, I haven't dissociated. And what I would say in, in the retrospect, as we look through our own histories, the only thing that surprises me about myself is how bold I've been throughout my whole history. So it's, and then if we translate it into polyvagal terms, what am I really saying? I was safe enough to be who I am. I wasn't that concerned. That meant that I could do novelty. I could be creative. I could do other things. But I learned a lesson relatively early in life. And that is if you succeed in something, allow that success to transform you. And so take the reward and reframe who you are. It's a powerful message. Because what people often do is they get rewards and say, oh, that's not important because I got it. And what we need to say is, you know, people are giving me an award. They're saying I did something good. The, the, the examples I use, I was a very fine musician when I was younger. So I, and that's a consensus judgment. So I, I, I was number two in the state of New Jersey on the clarinet and I, my teacher had been the solo clarinetist with Tuscanini. So I had experiences in music of saying, you're good. You know, it's unambiguous. And I also was ran. I, I wasn't great, but I was good enough to, I got a track scholarship. And we know how, do, how are you good when you run? It's the time. It's an objective measurement. So the convergence of a consensus through music and the issue of track 
basically said, yeah, you're okay. And, you know, you're a smart guy. You don't have to get all A's. Well, I had friends who basically they didn't get a perfect score. They felt like they had failed. I just said, get through the course, move on to the next thing. But for many people here, when they get such compliments, those compliments yeah. are filtered through the drama yeah. perception. Yeah. They don't yeah, mean they, it. Yeah, they have yeah. to work even harder. They're yeah. just saying it to make me feel good. Yeah. Well, even if I, if, they, if I believe it, my nervous system doesn't believe it. Right. They're not safe enough to take So, so, so help us. So, so hold my hand for a few moments, I, please. I'll, I'll hold your hand. And, 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 and when I'll, somebody's I'll giving a... you a compliment or me a compliment or any yeah. of you out here a compliment, yeah. and my nervous can I, system can I is add not to believing that? it. Huh? Can I add to that, Rabbi YY, doctor, as you're walking, holding Rabbi YY's virtual hand, can you also explain what's going on in the person's body? Like physically, when they got when they get that compliment and they oh, oh. automatically push it away, what's what's going on from a physiological okay, level? So and, and I'm going to throw all, in one one more question because yeah. we want the comprehensive answer. Or my spouse, my husband, my wife says, uh, "Don't forget, don't forget to be on time. You have to be seven o'clock there, or or you know yeah. you forgot to buy the challah for Shabbos, yeah, or yeah, uh, yeah. or you're late." I, I think, and, and suddenly, uh, yeah. You're a bad guy. The body I know, I know shuts the down. You're, you're yeah, uptight. Yeah. You're angry. You you want to throw a rock on the window, but you're a nice guy, so you repress yeah. it. Yeah, but <laughs> here's the problem. It's the fact that we're using language without understanding the impact of that language. So we're not co-regulating in our language. I have the same thing with my with my wife. She says things to me, and they're basically triggers because we're assuming I have responsibility for things that I don't have responsibility for. And we have to basically say, look, nothing wrong with a dialogue. But when you start, in a sense, proclaiming that someone has to do something, it's not the same thing as saying, will you be able to do that? You know, it's different. It's the way we engage the person in the dialogue. Does it have a symmetry to it? Or are we, in a sense, bossing? Uh, and the issue is our bodies do well. And we say, you know, there are a lot of things going on. Could you be helpful and do this or Will you have time to be helpful and do this? I shouldn't even use the word, will you be helpful? Will you have time? The issue is because we have to assume that you'll be helpful. You know, we don't want to... The spouse may also not be regulated. (laughs) Ah, that's my point. That's my point. So the point is when people are anxious, in the case like your, your spouse or my spouse, they are broadcasting their physiological state to us. Now, the issue is when someone is anxious, what is a physiological state of anxiety? It's threat. They're broadcasting their state of threat. It's the same physiological state. And when we detect cues of threat from someone else when they're broadcasting it, guess what happens to our bodies? Just what you described. We move into that same state. Now we're no longer the compassionate adult in the room. We're no longer there to comfort that person. So again, because we are triggered, cycle. we're triggered ourselves. We're triggered. We're triggered. So, so, I, I, so hold. I, I want you to hold my hands and do a few things with me. So, what, hold my hand okay. and help me co-regulate. How do I co-regulate? Okay, my the child, first, my spouse. Yeah. Friend. Okay. Let let's let's slow things up. Let's give you that reaction. That reaction is a physiological reaction. You were told something. Your body interprets it. It's what I call neuroception. It's a detection. It's not a uh, intentional behavior your body reacted to it and that neuroception 
is kind of like what people really mean when they say the word empathy. You have an empathic reaction, but in this case, it's not empathy of care. It's empathy of someone else's anxiety and threat. But you picked it up. It was broadcast. And it was unambiguously broadcast to you. That's the important point. There's no ambiguity. And once you acknowledge that, you say, well, look what my body picked up. Wow. So I have this physiological response. And before I throw the rock, before I get angry, I am now in a state of awe. I'm looking at, look what a body. Look what it picked up. Wow, that's It detected, do you follow where I'm going? It detected that this person that I care about is in a state of anxiety, a state of threat. What if I, in the once I dissipate that threat reaction, which only takes a few seconds if we don't live it. So if we let it go through, we then move into what would be called compassion, where we are present, we are respectful, and we acknowledge that the other person is in the point of suffering of some level. And then we can being stuck in threat, being anxious is suffering. And this is when we start talking to the community. The community is suffering if it gets locked into states of threat. And that's why they are coming to you. They are locked in states of threat. But they are wise enough, sensitive enough, and optimistic enough to say, I can get out of this if you will help me. And the first part is the understanding of what is happening inside me. That's what I'm going through with you. And the second part is in the understanding of what's going inside me is predicated on the awareness. Now, remember, for many people, their survival was on numbing that awareness. So now we honor the fact that they're reacting. We say, wow, this is really a good stage. You have these feelings are coming through you. What does it feel like? What's happening at your heart? How do your muscles feel? Look in the, okay. So I, I had a, a person who was literally a Holocaust survivor visiting. Well, he was a pair, child of a Holocaust survivor. And he lived his life with a flat face, you know, which is the mask. Trauma face, and, a trauma yeah, face. Yeah, trauma. I mean, you, you can look at the, in fact, supermodels have trauma faces, by the way. This is how we idolize our uh, women in our society is without dynamic exuberance, but flat uh, dissociative looks. That's what that's what the advertisers are using. Anyway, he's visiting, he's sitting out on, on my deck looking at the ocean, and I bring out uh, the acoustic stimulation that I use for uh, trying to, uh, let's say, stimulate the social engagement system. Trauma therapists are using it. He listens for 30 seconds, and he has this beautiful smile in the upper part of his face. I said, go and look in the mirror. <laughs> it was like, it was literally shocking to him that his, uh, basically, uh, he reacted in such a way that his body understood the cues. Now, the issue with a person like him, if he listens to a normal, let's say, more than a few seconds, he'll get that physiological feeling of what I would call safety. But given the history, that creates an interoception. The body feelings now go up. And now that feelings of safety is restructured by his narrative as being vulnerable. And that triggers that anxiety, that mobilization. I've got to get out of there. So that's why you're giving me the compliment. Yeah. When you're giving me the compliment, if I'm to accept it, it's vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. If you're truly accepting it, you're allowing me into your space. And and then the next stage is going to be a dagger in my heart. Or my own fear, in my own nervous system. The dagger in your heart is 
I'm getting out of here because there will be a dagger. There will be a dagger. So, so this compliment is a lie. You don't even well, mean this, it. We, You're there full words, of it. There's a word that it was never part of my, my life until I started hearing everyone saying it, and that is imposter syndrome. Yes. And I 19, hear that. It's coined I, in 1978, yes. I hear it almost, I would say, Right. Every day, every other yes, day, when yes, people yes. actually people engage me, yeah, and I'm just a liar and I'm fooling the whole world. I'm fooling yeah. the so whole world. so people will say it to me like one woman. I'm doing, a, uh, I'm giving a workshop, and I asked if maybe she'd like to do it with me, and she got really anxious about it and said, you know, imposter syndrome, you know, all, all this. Bit. And, and in my mind, it was it'd be much more fun and easier for me if she did it with me. I'm thinking about you know the experience that she had. It would be helpful to be useful she's saying that she is not worthy right and and this becomes common and so i'm perpetuating the lack of safety that my nervous system is accustomed to but what i want to say is that people often work hard to maintain that because their nervous system is accustomed to they work hard on rejecting the engagements, the calming, the, because with it comes a vulnerability, and they don't want that vulnerability. So now hold or, my hand and help me heal a little bit. When I receive that compliment, when I receive that feedback, positive or negative, maybe criticism. You, the next step on all Or I'm that, disassociating, or I'm Well, let, let's not get to dissociation yet. Okay, okay. Let's Sorry. say you're, you're getting into a reactivity to the compliment. The next step is to kind of have a discussion of that. And what a lot of therapists are using, they're using the acoustic stimulation I developed as an adjunctive tool, as part of their toolkit, to enable trauma survivors to get certain feelings and to deconstruct those feelings without labeling them. Mm -hmm. So they're getting this visceral feeling of these cues to the nervous system of accessibility, and their body's doing that take off the intervention, take off the stimulation. Let's talk about what you're feeling. What are you feeling? What are the visualizations? What are the associations coming to you? And over time, this is, again, titration or pendulation. People use different words. or they, they, You get used to your body being in different states. I did a podcast yesterday. I was talking about what I did with my son when he was three and a half years old. He he was three and a half and we down at Disney World and I want I took him on Space Mountain. He gets on it in that time time I they had the, the small kids we would hold on the on the uh, roller coaster rides. And so it starts creaking up the incline and he says to me, he says, Dad, I want to get out. I look at him and I well, I can't look at the I have him on my arms. I said, It's almost over. We go on this thing, go, and we're down in the minute and a half, and he's looking pretty pale. And I looked over at him. I said, wasn't that fun? He thought for a moment. He went inside. He thought about how he felt. And he says, yes, let's do it again. And the point is that he had a bodily feeling that he was not used to. And it could have been labeled in different ways. But the fact that his father was there and his father wanted to do this, it became something that he experienced in a very positive way. He still loves roller coasters, and he's in his early 40s. Rabbi Waiwai and Dr. Porges, I, I know we, we had an hour set aside. Doctor, if we go a little longer, is that okay? Sure, that's fine. Okay, good, good, good. Because we do have a few live questions that are coming mm-hmm. up. 
So, uh, so you said something very powerful. So if if I say something to my spouse or conversely or or another yeah. person that I'm close with, how do I know that the anxiety or the shutting down or the nervousness I'm experiencing actually has nothing to do with what they said, but with my own perception and interpretation oh. of what they said? Oh, in other words, it's well, completely let, let's, internal. Let Let's get something on the table. The words are not the major thing. It's how they said it. The intonation of their voice is what you're detecting. And so you, you don't get into an argument about words. Get into an argument about the uh, what's being conveyed through the intonation of the voice. You can say really nasty things with a prosodic voice and people will just laugh at you. Uh, so the, it's really this understanding that it's not the words it's how the words are spoken. And that's the biological aspect of the bo- how the body reacts. And we have, so when you're in this, let's say, benevolent, calm mood, your voice carries, broadcasts it. And we are a very uh, syntax, linguistic syntax world, where we try to think that we, I didn't say that, therefore I'm not culpable in any way. But we are, if we are broadcasting our own physiological anxiety. But is it and, not true that based on my own history of my mm-hmm. own nervous system, yeah. you might tell me, uh, you know, something, and I mm-hmm. will be very, very calm. But another person who might yeah. hear the same tone, the same melody, yeah. will freak yeah. out yeah. because Absolutely. of their own history. It's their own history, but let's... Let's let's make that a little more scientific. Let's say it's not just their history. It's the physiological state they are in right. at the moment that they're hearing it. And that means that you could respond in different ways based upon your own physiological state. So just because you're resilient today to my insulting words doesn't mean you will be tomorrow. Um, so we have, in a sense, we have to understand that we, our bodily state is really a functional mediator. You would view it literally as a filter or an amplifier of how we react. And mediator means that when our body's in this calm, safe state, we can literally go anywhere. If it's not in that state, which is really more descriptive of most people, then we have to be careful because we may trigger someone else or we may be triggered. The, the part I, I really want to emphasize is that it's not the words. Intonation of voice is much more biologically potent to us than the words themselves. So contrary to the uh, sticks, and to- sticks and stones uh, can't break my bones, words can never harm me. That's not the words are not what's harming you. It's the intonation the of tone, the words. The melody. Are. Yeah. And, and it's hurtful. So when someone feels really triggered, they are in pain. And that is a physiological response, no different than a cut, a bruise. It's real. Or or an illness. So if we if we uh let's jump into a few questions here before we uh our time is up, Doc. Uh, Yako from Archie Srall, I think you had a live question. Yeah. Um Based on what you just were saying, um, you know, as an example, for instance, okay, because what I'm here, first of all, thank you, Dr. Porges, for your time. That uh, I really, we really appreciate that. Um, that's first. You, as the trauma victim, okay, I'm coming from the trauma 
side of things. You're healing. You're feeling much better in, in your growth and the way you're going about your life. Now you have somebody who comes um, on the other side and you're having a conversation with them. And their tone of voice starts becoming a little bit louder yeah. or a little bit stronger. Mm-hmm. You yourself already feeling stressed and triggered. Yeah. Okay. You react, of course, slightly. And that other person now reacts in kind. Yeah. As the person who's growing and you, and you, and you know it, you, you, you feel it. You, you understand mm. that you are being triggered. You're in the yeah. midst of a conversation. Mm. How, when you said, when you want to bring down that, yeah. that co-regulation, is there a trick or a, um, something that as the individual that you can help bring it down because it's very good for a person who does not have that history necessarily of trauma to understand that maybe I'm triggering somebody. I need to bring down the correct. I need to bring down the tone. But the person who is triggered Hmm. has a much harder time bringing down that tone. Yeah. Let's, let's go through the whole, uh, your whole, uh, discussion here. Let's start off with identifying as uh, a victim of and not a survivor, not a survivor. So let's talk about the even the presentation of your own self. You are a survivor. You're not a victim. You have survived it. That's that in itself is a very positive attribute. And so let's get that into the core of who you are. The other part is, yes, when you feel triggered, you have a responsibility now to that body. And that is, number one, you may basically say, I need to excuse myself from here. I need to go for a walk. Alternatively, the person you're having this more heated type dialogue, if you were walking and talking, the dialogue might be much more manageable because your body is really screaming to move into a fight flight. And if you're walking, you're already partially there. So I think the dance movement therapists had the secret all along that when you deal with deep trauma, movement is important because focusing on a sedentary situation is focusing on a person who is vulnerable and can easily be triggered and being in a seated position is a place of vulnerability. So number one trick is movement. Number two trick is taking a breath. And I would say the most important thing is to say, I had enough, you know, We'll get back into this, but not right now. You know, in a sense, be deflected and be respectful, but deflected and say, this is not, I need, you can even say, I need to take a deep breath. I need to walk. This is very important in terms of my own history. And I don't, I'm not really prepared to deal with it right now. Try to uh, smooth it in a way that doesn't trigger the other person. But the issue is you need to respect what your body has been telling you because over time if you can in sense navigate in and out of these situations you'll gain more and more resilience because your nervous system is really lives and thrives on what i call neural expectancy the fact that it becomes dysregulating for you is your nervous system already has anticipated the worst and as you have more positive experiences your nervous system says these are the ups and downs of normal dialogue Dr. Porges, is is this a good time? Like I said, when we started, we never know the direction of these 
uh, sessions. Perhaps it would have made more sense earlier, but things just took off. But can you give a, a polyvagal for dummies 90 seconds? Many of the people watching this right now have are aware of your work. We talk about it here at Fresh Start. It's a big part. But for newbies that yeah. want to watch this video, uh, what's what's a 90-second version of polyvagal to just understand its real impact the, the body? The 10-second one is that our, our physiological state influences our way we react to the world, how we perceive it, how we respond to others. And that has, it's very predictable. So once one says your physiological state, we now know that if our state is in a state of calmness, we're more engaging, we're more trusting of others, others trust us, we're more accessible. And if we're in a state of more mobilization, uh, fight, flight, sympathetic activation, then you know, we're literally uh, broadcasting cues of aggression. And and the Would, body part that regulates that is called the vagus. Nerve. Well, the vagus is involved in the first one, calmness. That's the that's a new mammalian or vagus. So the term polyvagal gets its name from the fact that the vagus has two major branches, but it's the mammalian branch, the social branch that is literally the container or constrainer that once that's on board, everything else falls into place. So you can pull it back and you get sympathetic excitation. But when you are resilient, the vagal break goes right back on and you're back in the dialogue. But what happens is that once you get worked up or triggered, triggering really means in the trauma world is that the neuroventral vagus is now dormant. It went away to give permission to your nervous system to be in a state of defense efficiently. You are now a warrior until you can no longer fight, and then you shut down when it gets overwhelming and you disappear, you dissociate. And those are defensive systems. The aggressive one uses sympathetic, but the shutting down one is also a vagal, but it's an ancient vagal circuit. So thus, polyvagal. But the point of the theory is that that intervening variable that's between you and the world and your responses is your physiological state. And when you're in that calm ventral vagal state, the world can go all different ways and you're in charge, you're loving, you're caring, you're resilient. When you're in a state of sympathetic dominance or uh, fight flight or highly mobilized, anything that happens, it's going to trigger and you're going to overreact. And if you're in the other one, you're not there. I mean, which so, is the way. So I think the, uh, Rabbi Waiwai, I'm sure you'd agree, but the famous Yiddish expression of Sizaltz and Kaparain uh, turns out is not so true. And mm. That's essentially polyvagal theory. It's not all in Kaparain, it's in your body. Well, the Lofen, losing your head is number one. That's when you lose your head. Okay, so. Fallen in the cup, you, yeah. Yeah, you fell into a, a trap there with that statement because you separated the mind or the brain from the body. Right. And polyvagal theory says this is a bi-directional integrated system. It's a co-regulatory system. And when the brain no longer has its regulatory capacity to service the body, we're in states of defense. And that's not good. So we lose our, when we lose our head, we're in states of defense. But when we have our head, our body does what it's supposed to do, and our mind and our brain and our social behavior and our compassion and love does what it what it evolved to do. All right. Um, I think we might have a couple other questions there. Fryan, did you want to ask a question? Yes. 
Go ahead. So as a parent that has limited time to spend with their children, what do I want to be doing in that limited time, especially given, you know, all the stuff that we're learning first started in terms of like attachment and safety and instilling safe um, feelings in our children. You want to give the child cues of safety, but you have to know what cues of safety are. So the issue is, uh, engagement where you look at and where you smile where you do reciprocity playfulness if you can experience playfulness with a child that is co-regulation playfulness is not parallel play playfulness is interacting with the person seeing them and having shared uh behaviors team sports used to be really examples of things that occurred where you look at your teammates that will enhance your ability to perform. So the child needs to feel that the child is the focus of the world at that point. What that means is the child's not taking you away from something that the child has already internalized is important to you. So it's like, I'm stopping work so I can play with you now. Don't ever say that thing. Look, I'm really going to make time because I really love to play with my kids. And that has to be conveyed. What it gets conveyed in intonation of voice, in facial expressivity, in muscle tone, in gesture. Uh, just think about who you would want to spend time with when you were younger. And think about how people respond to you even when you're older. And what are the features of people that makes your body give up its tension? Thank you. Um, doctor, I had a question also. <clears throat> you were talking before about how important, you know, it is for a baby to be nursed by the mother and what's done for this young child, how it prepares the nervous system for the mm-hmm. rest of their lives. What happens when, you know, this is a question of many of our participants and myself, when I didn't have that, I didn't have a safe, you know, how do I start doing that to myself? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, remember, the rules are, I mean, you're you're well along on your journey because you're asking the right questions. And the next question is, what are the bodily feelings that you have when you feel safe and if you can feel safe with another? And there are a lot of ways that people enhance those bodily feelings. They, some of them are as simple as breathing technology. So like almost yoga breathing, where you learn to exhale slowly. When you exhale slowly, it's the calming and it's, it, the mammalian vagus is doing its job doing exhalation. If you want to get anxious and mobilize, extend the duration of your inhalations and exhale slow, uh, very rapidly, and you'll get very worked up very quickly. You can do that as an exercise, and you can see how powerful it is to shift physiologically state how the world looks. I used to do an experiential uh, at workshops where I had people do long exhalations and short inhalations and reverse them. And what was interesting is when you have long uh, uh, inhalations and short exhalations, the person across, they used to think that they were doing something wrong. So it's this whole notion that if your body's in a state of mobilized threat, literally, you're going to evaluate the world as being uh, aggressive or you're an imposter, you did something wrong. But when they exhaled slowly, they saw their partner as someone they would like to know better. 
they start to see the warmth in the other person's face. And it's really remarkable that something as simple as how we breathe can change our world. So for you, I would say some of these breathing techniques and seeing how the world looks to you with these different breathing techniques is the next step because what you're learning is what are those bodily feelings that enable you to be accessible. And when we started this whole session, I wanted to really make the statement that I'd be called Steve and not Dr. Porges, because if you want to grasp polyvagal theory, it's all about accessibility. Mm. And if you start putting labels, you put distance and you're giving mixed cues to people who are reaching out Kabbalah for co-regulation. So what I'm saying is accessibility is our gift. Mm. And when we feel safe enough to be accessible, wow. we are co-regulators. You know, I, I just want to tell you, it's a fascinating point you just mentioned. At Fresh Start, we have the privilege of working with some of the most amazing uh, people who've spent years getting degrees. Um, and and one that we talked to last week that's working with us on a particular project, I, I assume you might know her, Dr. Ruth Lanius. Oh, yeah. Um, and and she's like, no, 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 call me Ruth. And yeah. Now, I know we're sitting here and you're saying, call you Steve. And you got Janina Fisher who says, call me Janina. And yeah. I don't know, in our culture, Rabbi YY, you know, the, the rabbi and doctor, I mean, who doesn't want a doctor for a son-in-law, right? I mean, uh, and, and here we are calling all you people by your first names. But I guess that explains it. Yeah, well, there's, there's okay, so, look, I came out of an East Coast culture where doctor was the world, you know. Uh, in fact, my folks were very disappointed that I wasn't, quote, a real doctor. Okay, let's go into that level. But the point is, for me, what is the benefit of all this? What, what do I get? What do I get out of a podcast? I get that out of, basically, I get the relationship out of the podcast, the interaction. That's my social nourishment, especially during the pandemic. So I get a lot back. And it, the, the stuff I want back is not to be honored. I want the interaction. I want the real stuff. I want, in a sense, the trust, the love, the benevolence. I want to go back and forth on it I, because it defines who I am. And I want to define myself as a contributing human being that through contribution gets transformed to be able to contribute more. It's nourishment. Could you hold my hand once more, doctor, <laughs> if I may? with your uh, empathetic, expansive heart and nervous system. So I'm in the room. Somebody walks in, maybe a perpetrator, maybe somebody I perceive as a threat for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And my body, I I feel, I I experience the physiological response. Or I'm having a conversation with an employee, with an employer, with a boss, with a spouse, with a friend, with a sibling, a parent, a brother-in-law. And, and, and I'm feeling myself either mm. becoming uptight, scared, uncomfortable, creepy, queasy. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's my child challenging me and, 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 and I'm getting angry or overwhelmed or I want to detach. Hold my hand. Okay, so, How do I respond at that moment? What do well, I tell myself? What do I tell the other? And I know it's internal. The other person. Well, okay, let's start off. Your, your body is telling you a lot of things. And the question is, at what level are you taking that information? So let's not confuse your history with the reaction. You have a reaction. Okay. Okay, let's just say you have a reaction. And you have no history with the person, but you have a reaction. Right. Okay, so 
that should trigger your curiosity. Right. Okay. So not your anger at yourself about getting into the state, but your curiosity. And that curiosity says, well, is there a similarity between the features of this person, their presence, the way they speak, and what had happened to me in the past? Right. Okay, so we start now using our big brain to develop our narratives, and we complement ourselves with picking up those features and saying, wow. And if the features are such potent triggers that we can't, in a sense, control our behavior or feel safe enough to continue, we step out, we go for a walk, we have a drink, we, in a sense, do body self-care, self-compassion, to our body gets down. And during the time we're doing our self-care and self-compassion, we're complementing our brain, ourself, with this curiosity that has crept into our minds. And we try to figure it out. Okay, and then we come back and then what we do is we now have a different set of eyes that we're looking at the individual and we're saying, well, there's big differences here. And, you know, even though the initial features, okay, let me give you real life examples. Frequently, I give talks at meetings and people will come up to me afterwards and the opening words will be, I'm an I'm a eight on the aces or I'm a nine on the aces. That's the introductory where they say they'll reach over and says, look, uh, and I'll Actually, look you want to just, you want to just explain what the aces okay, is. Aces is adverse childhood experience scale. And it's basically numbers when they get above five aren't good. Okay. If they get above four, they're not good. So if someone comes up to you and they say have an eight or a nine, you know that they probably had sexual abuse as a child. They were, you know, all kinds of things that are, are not, uh, leading to optimal outcomes. It's a covariate with lots of mental health. Actually, it's related to virtually every illness, mental and physical. So they'll come up to me and they'll say, I am an eight. And I've, you, you've read about people like me or something like that. I'll look at them and I'll smile at them and say, you look like you're doing really well. They'll smile back. And then I'll say, would you like a hug? And I'll give them a hug. They'll say, yes. Then I'll get an email back. An email will be, you're the first male that I let hug me or touch me in 20 years. Wow. So the issue was the trigger changed within the context with me. And it didn't matter whether I was really that safe male. What mattered was their nervous system used me as a safe male. So I became, let's say, an archetypical safe adult male. And their body really wanted the opportunity to have that neural exercise. And, you know, to me, you know, as I say, it's really kind of with gratitude. I I am pleased that I can play that role. But the interesting thing, I don't really need to be what they think I am. Right. I just have to be there. So this is that. this is inspiring for all of us. But now come back to me, the victim <laughs> or the survivor who's yeah. who. Yeah, I'm not feeling safe. Yeah. This person is talking to me and, yeah. and they may be the nicest person in the world. Yeah. Right. But but I have learned that I am not safe. So yeah. I see you or whoever it is as a threat, even though you're yeah. not screaming at me. Yeah. But I am perceiving here a threat. Hold my mm. hand. How can I? You're not perceiving a threat. You're detecting a threat. Detect- There's okay. a difference. Beautiful. Got Once it. you perceive it, you're blaming yourself if, if it's a real threat or not a real threat. Okay, that's powerful. You have a nervous system that reaction. That's a threat. So I you're, gave it compassion. You're detecting, you're detecting features of a person that your nervous system is, uh, let's say, 
detecting as a threat. It doesn't mean it's a real threat. Right. So the issue is you're a smart guy. You, But you first, and this is where I think I want to hold your hand because there is a gap here. You need your hand held because first, yes, yes, you need your hand held because you first need to respect your bodily feelings. Your right. knee-jerk response is to get angry at yourself. Right. And the reaction is, my body is responding. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> you know, it's like, what's going Doc, on here? Doc, can I, can I just yeah. chime in? I, because what you're saying, I just got a message from somebody and they said, but feeling and connecting with my body makes me feel scared. Absolutely. What if you're so afraid? How do you even get to a point where you can do everything you just said? Well, the first part, and this is really what I was actually asked earlier, the first one is the acknowledgement of your bodily state. Right. Because the body, just as that question is about, it's saying that on their journey of adaptive survival, they numbed out the feelings. And what that really means is the nervous system, to, to survive, basically turned off the feedback loops. That leads to major health issues, mental and physical health issues, because they're turning off feedback mechanisms. So the first one is the awareness. So what we're getting is that, yes, my body feels this way. Isn't that wonderful? My body can feel. And then the other one is that it feels that it's under threat or scary. I need to be a good, uh, let's say, a guardian of my body. I need to take it out of this environment. I need to, my body has to learn that I will make good decisions. Wow. And the good decision is I'm getting triggered. What do I do? I go into a place where the trigger isn't bothering me. It dissipates. It doesn't mean, and again, people who who have these experiences often will drink or take drugs as a mechanism for numbing this out or become workaholics, exercise. Uh, um, addicts, you know, all these types of strategies to numb the body out. And what we want to say is the body is telling me something important. And I am aware of that. It wow. may make me feel uncomfortable. But as I learn more about it, the journey is mapped out for me. Wow. It's mapped out through basically all the wonderful therapists that you have engaged and know about, uh, that they have developed strategies that bring people along that journey that starts off with the awareness and it, it incorporates a lack of labeling those feelings. So there are two things occurring, aware, but not labeling the feelings. The label locks in the feelings. And so we can't budge. We can't get out of it because we have the narrative. So if we can have feelings without narrative, we can have curiosity and we can experience and get the, how do I avoid blaming the other person? Instead of focusing on my my own my own experience, I'm like, oh, you you, you must be a terrible, uh, horrible, uh, uh, threatening person, which is another way of labeling it and getting yeah, stuck. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's how do I avoid? Because that's naturally where I may want to go in order to <laughs> well, feel let, safe. You, like, let, okay, let's let's start off with who I hope you are. Okay. And that is, uh, let's hope you're a compassionate, benevolent human being, which I'm sure you are. So the answer is that would not be your reaction. And because that reaction would be hurtful to another. So we know that if we literally, okay, carry this kind of uh, model in our mind, do no harm. And uh, the issue is we can be triggered and our body may want to be harmful to others. 
that we can see what the game that is being played with us as we shift physiological state. And we can use our big brain, and we have big brains, to kind of understand and literally monitor what's happening and not be seduced into completing the action that a lower brain survival system wants to put us in. Because it, it, especially when you're dealing, let's say, with people who are anxious, they want to complete the action. They can't stop it. And the answer is, if you can stop it and just revel in the feelings with curiosity, mm. you're on your way to heal because you've now interfered with that lower brainstem foundational survival reaction with a higher cortical influence. And that is, that's the healing process. It's when our, our conscious brain takes agency over these responses and doesn't take agency by blaming it, but takes agency by respecting it and finding curiosity in it. Doc, do we have time for one more live one question? One more, and then, and then, okay, then we're rolling. Gitti, go ahead, and then we're going to say okay. our goodbyes. Okay. Yes, hi. Um, I, my question is, what, when I get triggered, um, I can realize what, what you're saying. Like, I'm, I'm on the journey of, you know, calming myself down. But what about when I'm in a, like, constant trigger, triggered state? Like, I'm triggered just because I'm existing. Like, that's triggering. And that's where I don't know, like, how to... Okay, so, um, again, a lot of people deal with that by moving. This is so they do things like going for walks or going into nature or having a dog, having a pet, using a dog or, you know, a pet or a cat as a co-regulator. A lot of people can't co-regulate with humans, but with pets, their bodies can feel safe enough to co-regulate. And there are people who work with horses the same way. So given that your body is screaming and you're basically searching for a tool for co-regulation, think about pets and think about walking. Uh, I don't live in a place. You don't live where? Pardon? (laughs) Pets are not so... um, In the community, not everybody has pets. Something, but... The community, the community that she lives in, uh, is still uh, working through their journey of accepting pets uh-huh. as a common form of connection. Okay, then, 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 is there nature near where she lives? Is there a park? Is, is there a park? Are there birds? Is there a zoo? Or is there you know something that has life in it that has variation? It could be I could go out for a walk and, you know, but the idea is that I'm, I'm, I'm home and I'm around my kids and my husband ah, and I, I have like a fear of existing and it's not because they're doing anything wrong. It's because yeah. I'm triggered every minute of my day. Yeah. The, the, the part I'm saying is if you can figure opportunities, uh, let's say, uh, co- which would be co-regulatory, which would be even something like a yoga class or something where there's breathing and moving with other people. Uh, and in fact, what's interesting about the yoga community, it's really uh, highly densely uh, represented by people with trauma histories because they have gone there because it helps them make them feel better. So before we, before we conclude, um, Rabbi Russell, you just joined us all the way from Israel. It's an honor to have three uh, amazing, incredible, impactful people in the in our community and the world of healing all on this. And um, Rabbi Russell, we just got the whole polyvagal theory. We solved it all. 
with Dr. Gorgeous. Um, but we're just here to say goodbyes and, and final words. Rabbi Russell, maybe you just want to say something to sure. our alumni, then we'll ask Dr. Porges and Rabbi Yy to, <laughs> to wind up. Sure, absolutely. Well, first, uh, the thing, I, I, I couldn't resist this. I just finished a session with someone. Um, Dr. Porges, as you know, uh, I, if everyone knows, he and I met last week, had the most wonderful, uh, wonderful afternoon together. And it was so profoundly validating uh, for me. In uh, as I told Dr. Porges, and, and you know, Rabbi, Rabbi, you know this very well because you say over my stuff better than I say over my stuff. You know very well where it comes from. This is where it comes from. This uh, from Dr. Porges. I learned, um, I learned so much on a practical level for how to take the theory and actually bring it practically to change our lives to mold our lives, both on a personal level and on a systemic level. And um, we have serious plans to do stuff. Am I correct, Dr. Borges? Absolutely. I, I, I'm going to be the student. Yes, we're, <laughs> going, to, we're going to do some wonderful things. Five yes, we are. And, and I just for the alumni, I just got to tell you that there's not a day goes by where I don't use the principles of co-regulation, mm-hmm. of neuroception, interoception, of, of these understandings that uh, mm-hmm. well, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that another time, the, de- the delicate uh, differences between them. <laughs> we, yeah. we, we, we worked that out last week, just uh, we had a primer on that. But seriously, the, um, the ideas of co-regulation, that alone, to learn how to do that and to really tune in and have real attunement with people around you, that uh, the power of it is absolutely mind-boggling. It's, it's quite mind-boggling uh, that we can really change things and improve our lives and improve our community. And we just got to really study it and work at it. I can tell you it's informed Absolutely. my life and changed my life in every every imaginable way, which, you know, Steve, I'm indebted, indebted. Well, and I do you. plan doing good something. things. We're, we're going to do some good stuff together. Yes. Rabbi Y.Y., before we wind down, just a, a few words of, of chizik, as you always do, and then we will... Uh, yeah, uh, first of all, after expressing you know gratitude on behalf of all of us to uh, Dr. Porges, who he said we shouldn't say that, we should say Stephen for the empathetic connection. So uh, I just would, you know, I just want to say one takeaway that at least I took out from this, and I think it's very powerful for me personally, and I think for all of us to some degree or another, there is a, a very profound teaching in, in Jewish spirituality that all the characters in the Bible really represent uh, internal qualities that we all possess. So they're really, you know, archetypes of things we're all dealing with. Mm-hmm. So Abraham, it says in the Zohar, the Kabbalah, Abraham is the soul yeah. and, and Sarah is the body. And yeah. God tells Abraham, whatever Sarah tells you, you should listen to her. And I once saw a fascinating interpretation by the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he said what that means is that there comes a stage in history where God tells the soul, you have to listen to Siri, you have to listen to your body. Yeah. Uh, the body has a wisdom that is sometimes deeper than the soul and, 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 yeah. and the anal- analytical uh, perceptive processes. It's yeah. really the detection of, of truth in a very, yeah. very profound way. And I could say about myself, and I think many of us, it's counterintuitive to, to mm-hmm. a lot. Uh, Rabbi Russell can explain this. 
to a lot with which we have been raised to disregard our body, to uh, dismiss our body, to even scorn our body. Uh, the body is a source of, 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 of problems and selfishness and, and, and just wants mm. to sleep and, and, and eat and fresh. And, and what you're teaching us is that really in, in the holistic life of oneness and, and mm. integration, uh, yeah. The body doesn't only play an important role, but it plays uh, such a profound and significant role of really listening to its cues, uh, being mm. attuned with mm. its melodies and its messages. And it allows us to become the loving, connected people that we all aspire to become. Oh, beautiful words. And just think of the body as our platform to be who we are. Right. And if that platform is damaged, we can't be who we are. And I don't even say, I think I have a very optimistic view, and that is most of what we view as damage can be rehabilitated and optimized. And that's really the whole strategy. Once our body gets the cues of safety, it does its own healing. And again, Western world has externalized the healing process or taken it away from the body, from the nervous system, from the individual, and empowered it into external treatments like drugs and surgery and other things. When really what we should have been looking at is the optimization of our body's own healing capacities. And that's what love and trust give. And I'm sure, and I'm going to say even, and prayer is a part of that too, prayer, meditation. Uh, If we track all that, we'll find out that the wisdom of this by or co-regulation between our conscious or intentional brain and our body has been deeply embedded in biblical work. So I don't think we're talking in different languages. I just think we have to find the common uh, common sources and actually uh, create, actually this is what I want to work with this group on, is actually creating a document uh, that basically talks about the wisdom of the body in the Bible. Right. I'm well, you got good. Dr. Porges, Stephen. You got you got two of the greatest people to help you with that, um, and and we're we're excited to uh, continue this discussion because there's a lot more. But I do want to take this opportunity to be respectful of your time, uh, Stephen, and thank you so very much for coming on. We look forward to uh, great things coming out of these this uh, relationship. I, I think the Chafetz Chaim is going to be proud. You know, you're <laughs> yeah, going to give. Exactly. You're going to give the Mishnah Brura a run for its money. But um, thank you to all of our <laughs> alumni, Rabbi YY. Thank you for, again, moderating and, and bringing in your insight and wisdom. Rabbi Russell, of course, thank you for showing up from Israel. We will do this again. And um, thank you, everybody, for joining. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. You will. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see thank you. you thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for inviting me into your community. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Our, our community, Steve. Our community. Our community. Thank you. You're one of us. You're one By of the us. way, the Chafetz Chaim said, your, your relative, the Chafetz Chaim once said that, you know, the Torah says you're not allowed to gossip about people. He says you're also not allowed to gossip about yourself. And it's just something you said before, how you have to really be able to celebrate your success. Yeah. So well, the Chafetz Chaim uh, concurs. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Take care. The Yeshiva.net. 